Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we are moving right along with our look at Civil War espionage. And last time we talked about Alan Pinkerton, who was a famous private detective who organized the first Union espionage. And so this time around, we're switching sides and genders to talk about a Confederate spy who belonged to what you could consider maybe a spy subgroup that existed around this time, and that's female spies. And this may come as a surprise to those who picture Civil War era women in the U.S. as wearing these Gone with the Wind style big dresses and grasping their smelling salts, just waiting tearfully for loved ones to come home. But during the years leading up to the war, gender roles were actually starting to evolve a little bit, thanks to industrialization in the North and the rising feminist and abolitionist movements. And the war, in some cases, just really instigated that change even more quickly, causing many women to stray from their normal lives in order to work in hospitals, enlist in the army sometimes, um, or even spy, as we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so our podcast subject today, Belle Boyd, was no exception to this sort of changing role role for women and and eventually turning to spying. She wanted to help out the Confederacy for several reasons, as we'll see. And spying was just one way that felt natural for her. She was known for using her feminine wiles to get information. And Boyd consequently picked up some nicknames, including La Belle Rebelle and Cleopatra of the Succession. And she became famous for her work as a spy, both during and after the war. But we've got to also look at how her efforts helped the Confederate cause, because you can spy, but it all comes down to the quality of the information you get. But before we talk about that, let's take a look at how she got her start in espionage in the first place. Well, she was born May 9th, 1844 in Martinsburg, Virginia, which is now part of West Virginia. And from there, much like with Pinkerton's story, some of the details that we found are up for debate. And that's because a lot of what's been passed down over the years about Belle's story came from her. And she supposedly had a little tendency to exaggerate sometimes, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. I think a spy just has to have a murky background. It, it's not right if, if he or she doesn't. That's a good point. <laughs> we do know, though, that Belle came from... A a good Southern family with Scottish roots, and her parents were Mary Glenn Boyd and Benjamin Reed Boyd, and she was the oldest of eight kids and apparently grew up quite a tomboy. She'd climb trees, she'd ride horses, she was headstrong, she was determined, and apparently her parents didn't really do that much to check her behavior. She was kind of indulged. No, for an example, there's the story in Peggy Caravante's book, Petticoat Spies, Six Women Spies of the Civil War, about how she once crashed a parent's dinner party when she was only 11 years old. Apparently, they told her that she was not old enough to go to this dinner party. So she's not happy about that. And at the end of the dinner party, people are just starting to get up and she rushes into the room on her horse in the dining room. <laughs> Quite an entrance. Her parents are really angry, of course, but they don't punish her because the rest of the guests are so amused by this. Yeah, it, it would make a good a good story to go home and tell your family. But she was still, even though she was this sort of tomboy, she was still raised to be a refined Southern belle. And at age 12, her parents sent her off to Mount Washington Female College in Baltimore to complete her formal education. And four years after that, she made her debut in Washington society in 1860. But that's kind of a, a 
interesting year to make your debut because just one year later, the Civil War started and 17-year-old Bell had to go back home to Martinsburg to help raise money for the Confederacy and eventually serve as a nurse, too. Yeah, and her father left to volunteer for service in the Southern Army as well, so he wasn't at home on July 3rd, 1861, when federal troops occupied Martinsburg. And the very next day, July 4th, Yankee troops started looting houses and generally just vandalizing the town, destroying things. And the soldiers had heard that Belle, in particular, had decorated her room with rebel flags. So a squad of them went over to the Boyd house, and their intention, obviously, was to take down those flags and raise a Union flag instead over the house. So they get over there, they start ransacking the place, looking for the flags. But in the meantime, a family servant is getting rid of all the flags. She's taking them down and burns them just before they get to Belle's room on the second floor. But a soldier is angry anyway about the situation. Maybe kind of embarrassed. Yeah. And he's deciding any. Exactly. And he decides he wants to ho- hoist a flag anyway. So Belle's mom at this point says, Men, every member of this household will die before that flag is raised over us. So pretty strong words here. Definitely fighting words. So at that point, the soldier apparently cursed at her and used some pretty filthy language. And Belle was just outraged. She wrote later, quote, I could stand it no longer. My indignation was aroused beyond control. My blood was literally boiling in my veins. So... She pulled out a gun and shot the guy, and the soldier died soon after that. Yeah, she got arrested, as you might imagine, soon after this, and an investigation followed. But a union commander actually ruled that it was a justifiable homicide and that she had, quote, done perfectly right and placed a detail around their house. It's kind of unclear to me. Different sources say different things. Some say that he placed the detail around their house to protect them. Others say that it was to prevent trouble. But many say that it's here, while she was becoming acquainted with the soldiers and the detail placed around her house, that Belle actually got her start as a spy, just basically flirting with them, chatting them up. That's where she was able to overhear union plans and get them to divulge important pieces of information that she then, quote, regularly and carefully committed to paper and at any opportunity sent by secret dispatch and trusty messenger to Confederate officers. Yeah, so by 1861, Bell's position got a little more official. She joined the Confederate intelligence, and Generals P.G.T. Beauregard and Thomas J. Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, used her as a courier. And she was really good at this because she knew the Shenandoah Valley really well, and she had excellent horsemanship skills. So in those early days, though, she wasn't quite careful. That that part of the the spy's um, tool set hadn't really <laughs> developed yet. She didn't use code. She didn't try to disguise her handwriting. And so in late 1861, the Union started to notice her. They started to, to catch on when they found a message in her handwriting signed Bell. Pretty obvious. Yeah, so they picked her up and they read her the articles of war at Union headquarters and told her that the penalty for spying was death, which she probably knew. But then they released her after that. And according to Caravantes, they didn't think that a 17-year-old girl could do any harm. So as we'll see later, they probably should have thought better of that. But after that incident, Belle's mom was a little worried. She sent her to stay with relatives in Front Royal, Virginia, which was 40 miles to the south of Martinsburg. So she basically thought Belle would be safer there. You might think that her mother would have gotten a little worried after Belle killed a man, but... (laughs) 
I guess Good this point, was the last Sarah. straw. <laughs> you're very, you're very sharp there. But regardless, she thought she'd be better off in Front Royal. Uh, that wasn't necessarily the case, though. After a relatively quiet winter there, Belle was up to her old tricks again, gleaning info from soldiers in Front Royal who were smitten with her. I mean, she was at this time considered to be a great beauty, and so they would write poems for her, bring her flowers. According to American history, she said of one captain, quote, I am indebted for some very remarkable effusions, some withered flowers, and last but not least, for a great deal of very important information, which was carefully transmitted to my countrymen. So she's a flirtatious spy, but it was supposedly one of those gullible guys who she flirted with who tipped her off on a union council of war that was going to be held in the drawing room of her aunt's old house in the spring of 1862. And Belle, the the former tomboy that she was, knew that there was a hole in the floor of the bedroom closet right above the drawing room where these men would be meeting. And so she snuck in there to eavesdrop. And while she was in there, she learned that General James Shields planned to take most of his troops out of the Front Royal to aid an assault on Richmond. And she eventually passed this information on to her side in a coded report. She's sort of getting a little smarter about that type of thing by now. Yeah, so by now she's passed on some info on maybe the number of troops and some of their plans. And this is significant because at the time, Jackson was on what became known as his Shenandoah Valley campaign, basically fighting for control of the Shenandoah Valley and hoping to distract Union troops from attacking the Confederate capital of Richmond. But it's tough to say how much Bell's work really influenced Jackson's decisions here. However, the next move she made is generally considered her biggest success in intelligence work specifically. On May 23, 1862, as Jackson's forces were approaching, Bell happened to speak to a Union officer, and she learned that Shields and his men were planning to burn the Front Royal bridges as they withdrew from town to slow the Confederates' pursuit of their army. Yeah, so Bell realized Jackson would have to speed up his attack if he was going to make it across those bridges in time. And she tried to get somebody to ride out to Jackson's camp and, and tell him, pass on this vital information. But no one was willing to risk riding out between the two armies. So Bell decided to just do it herself. She grabbed her white sunbonnet and ran across the gap with bullets just whizzing past her while she was going. And by the time she finally reached the Confederate side, she was gasping for air, but managed to get out her message to just Stonewall. And Jackson and his troops attacked quickly after after they got this news and managed to save the Front Royal Bridges. So they saved their means of access and also captured some enemy weapons and supplies while they were at it. And this consequently forced the Union troops to retreat and position the Confederates to move on Winchester behind the Union army. So it was a pretty valuable piece of information that produced uh, a big result. Yeah, and Jackson wrote Bell a note later that said, quote, Miss Bell Boyd, I thank you for myself and for the army for the immense service you've rendered your country today. Hastily, I am your friend, T.J. Jackson. So she got a personal thank you note from Stonewall. Yeah, that's a big deal. It is. So with that big success behind her and approval from this great officer of the Confederate Army, Bell continued to work as a courier slash spy after that. But in July 1862, at the age of 18, she was still really young then, she was arrested for espionage on the orders of the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. And she'd been arrested several times by this she point. She had a record. <laughs> yeah, she got arrested a lot of times, but she was usually able to kind of talk herself out of it. But this time she ended up going to Old Capitol Prison in Washington. 
She actually didn't have such a bad time there, though. She was kind of treated as a VIP. Admirers sent her special food and things like that. And she was released in a month as part of an exchange of prisoners. So, I mean, I think her health deteriorated a little bit. So it wasn't like paradise or anything, but she... It wasn't as bad as it could have been. It wasn't. She was treated differently from other prisoners because of her celebrity status. Yeah, but by July 1863, she was again sent back to Old Capitol Prison, this time for six months. And it was worse. This time she did get sick with typhoid fever. And when she was released to Richmond, she got a warning not to be caught within federal lines again. So it seems like the union is finally taking this girl pretty seriously. Yeah, but it also means because they are taking her seriously, she's not as effective as a spy in Northern Territory anymore. So she decided to serve the South by carrying messages to Southern sympathizers in England instead. So pretending that she was going to go on a trip to improve her health, she set sail on a blockade running ship called the Greyhound in May 1864. But a Union gunboat stopped and boarded them before they had even crossed the international border. Fortunately for Bell, though, the commanding officer is a young Union man named Samuel Harding, and his commission is to take the ship back to a U.S. port. But before they reached the port, Bell had worked her magic again, and Harding had fallen in love with her and switched his allegiance and even allowed the Greyhound's Confederate captain to escape. And consequently, um, Harding's superiors were not pleased by this change of allegiance. He was court-martialed. And rather than go to prison, Bell asked and was granted permission to go to Canada with the understanding that if she ever was caught on U.S. soil again, she'd be shot. But she's not in Canada for very long. No, after just a few months, she sails to England and her service to the South is pretty much finished. She meets with a Confederate agent when she gets there and says that she destroyed the message she was supposed to be carrying when her ship got boarded. And so it's done at that point. Yeah, I guess she took that last threat pretty seriously. But the rest of Belle's life was pretty fascinating, too. It could really be a separate podcast. Harding followed her to London after the Navy dismissed him, and the two of them got married. It wasn't a relationship that was going to last very long, though. No, soon after the wedding, Harding returns to the U.S., planning to run the Union blockade and actually work for the Confederacy. But he's caught and imprisoned and falls very ill. So he's allowed to return to England, but dies after a few months, leaving Belle a pregnant widow at the young age of 20. Yeah, so she's got a daughter now to support Grace, and so she writes a two-volume book called Belle Boyd in Camp and Prison to sort of support herself and her, her young family, and it suggested that a lot of this volume was embellished. She was trying to sell copies after all. And then after that, she embarked on a theatrical career and told her experience, told about her experience as a spy on the stage, again, laying it on pretty thick, creating this character of Belle Boyd that was something a little bigger than she had even been in life. Yeah, I mean, some sources suggest that a lot of the details that she put out there about her bravery and the dangerous element to her missions. A lot of that was exaggerated. And I mean, a lot of people think that when she was supposed to be carrying the message to England, there really was no message. She just she was just going to England. She was just going to (laughs) England. Um, So, you know, we may never know some of those details. But in 1866, after she embarked on this uh, theatrical career, she and her daughter were allowed to return to the U.S., where she continued her stage career under the name Nina Benjamin. And she remarried twice. 
once in 1869 to a wealthy businessman and former union officer, a second husband who was a former union officer, which I think she is interesting. She union guys, I She guess. seemed to. Um, and she had three kids with him. They divorced 15 years later, though. They didn't really have a very happy marriage. But just six weeks after that, she married again to a poor 24-year-old actor named Nathaniel Ruhai Jr. And she was 41 at the time, so there was a huge age difference there. And she had to start working again since he didn't have a lot of money. So she started giving dramatic speeches about her experiences during the war. And it was while she was on one of those speaking tours that she died of a heart attack on June 10th, 1900 in Wisconsin. She was buried there. She's still there. And yeah, a long way from home. Yeah, definitely. For a Confederate spy. She's and buried in, in the, Wisconsin. Yeah, in the Wisconsin Dells, I think. And her grave was actually unmarked for a while. Huh. Yeah, it was unmarked um, because I think they thought that her people in Virginia were going to send for her oh, because she was so well-known there, and they never really did. So other people paid for her to have a headstone. And well, I bet this is a fact our, our Wisconsin listeners are going to like. We learned recently in the King of Beaver Island episode that people from Wisconsin are pretty into hearing their state talked about on the podcast. Yeah, so if anyone has been to Bell Boyd's grave or knows any more about this area or any of the activities that go on here around Memorial Day, because I hear they kind of honor her around Memorial Day every year, let us know. Send us a picture. Yeah, but before we totally sign off on this Bell Boyd episode, I think it's interesting to point out that in her later years, when she was giving these talks, these speeches, she'd start to emphasize the union of the North and the South more and more. She would end her speeches with the quote, one God, one flag, one people forever. So in the end, she actually ended up winning the approval of both sides. Yeah. So she's the label rebel when she's a, a young person, but she ends up being kind of a patriotic American in her in her older years. Yeah. And she even became really popular with um, union veterans. So while we're talking about the Civil War and the Confederacy in particular, we might as well read a listener mail. So this email is from Zach, and he wrote in after our little shipwreck miniseries we did a while back. He said, good afternoon, ladies. I just listened to part two of your shipwreck miniseries and heard you talk about the Hunley. Well, that is amazing because just recently I interviewed one of the archaeologists who's been working on the Hunley since it was pulled out of the waters here in Charleston. He agreed to be interviewed for my podcast called Our List. The archaeologist agreed to be on the show and share his top five turning points in history, but the interview about his work on the Hunley and archaeology in general was so interesting, we dedicated two episodes to him. Some interesting tidbits. The officer in charge had been shot in the leg a few months prior at Antietam, I think. And his legs would have been more damaged and amputated, but a coin in his pocket saved him. That coin was found in the Hunley, dented, and with the date he was wounded etched in it. Little memento there. And his next point was, before the Hunley was discovered, there was much discussion about what it actually looked like and even how many people were inside. Once they saw it, they discovered it looked very much like a famous painting made at the Hunley before its last mission. For years, no one knew if that painting was accurate or not, but found that it was very detailed and had even helped them figure out what a few of the exterior parts would have looked like new. So thanks for these sort of Hunley insider tidbits from... um, an archaeologist involved in its excavation. Um, good to know. Yeah, so many cool stories surrounding the Hunley and and the people who died inside it and the discoveries that have ma- been made since. So definitely 
thank you for sending that in. So if you have any more Civil War spies you want to hear about, we've had a lot of fun talking about Pinkerton and Bell Boyd, and I'm sure there are so many more out there, or just other Civil War stories you want to hear. As you know, we're sort of continuing a leisurely Civil War series since we just hit that big anniversary this year. Uh, let us know by email or at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Missed in History. And if you want to work on your own spy skills a little bit, we have a great article on our website called How Spies Work. You can look it up by visiting our homepage and typing in spies at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.